Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 42. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life is School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with John S. Mead. John is the Eugene McDermott Master Teaching Chair in Science at St. Mark's School of Texas in Dallas. John is a biology teacher, science communicator, and nature photographer, fascinated in human origins, evolution, and microscopic organisms. In 2015, John traveled to the Evolutionary Studies Institute at the University of Witzwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, where he learned about the Rising Star Cave team who discovered and recovered a huge collection of hominid fossil bones. John was also able to record and post video interviews with members of the Rising Star team to document their experiences. On March 7th, as part of the Teacher Institute of Evolutionary Science, John will share his experiences getting to know and work with the Rising Star Cave team and detailing detailing the once-in-a-lifetime experience of how these new fossils were recovered and studied. In 2017, John began writing posts for the National Geographic Education blog. You can follow John on Twitter at Evo underscore Explorer and at Blue Lion Photos. Welcome, John. Thank you, Aaron. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm going through that intro, and uh, and we're very timely in this one because we're we're gonna put this one out on the Sunday night, Monday morning, right before you do your webinar. Yeah, that the timing couldn't ask for much better than that. And in addition, the Homo Naledi team is actually as of today heading back down into the Rising Star Cave for another round of excavations, which promises to bring some really neat surprises out. Yeah, so we're recording here in uh, late February, so um, and we're expecting, I guess, uh, the, depends on what they find, how fast new news will, will roll out on that. Yep, and they're, they're planning on being very open about it, and there'll be a lot of um, online stuff through Twitter, through uh, National Geographic uh, classroom explorer as and they'll be in the cave for the better part of the month of march it seems oh wow that's uh, that's pretty awesome all right well uh we, we could chat all night but uh about uh, homo naledi and i have a feeling that you could definitely do that uh but before we do i like to start off with a question i like to ask everybody which is how did you become a teacher uh what led you into the science classroom well, I guess uh, for me, it starts that I come from a very sciencey family. Uh, my father uh, was a lifelong physician, and multiple generations in my family were into medicine, and that was where I pretty much was convinced. If you looked at me through middle school and high school, that's where I was going to go. And I had the opportunity in high school to work at um, a university hospital in New York City and helping out with uh, neurosurgical anesthesia, something that in modern times, I don't think the lawyers would ever let happen again. <laughs> and I, I had a fantastic time from the science of it. I got to see brain surgery as a 14, 15 year old. I um, saw enough of them that I kind of by rote memory could have, could have run as a flawless uh, bit of neurosurgical anesthesia 
Now, had anything ever gone wrong, I couldn't have thought my way out of a wet paper bag. Um, but that was a great experience. But at the same time, um, it also showed me sort of the underside of medicine um, and the competitiveness of it, especially amongst medical students and residents and stuff. And I saw that maybe that wasn't really so much for me. Mm. And so um, as I as I went to college, I thought, OK, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a uh, a biological researcher of some sort. Um, and again, as I saw the life of grad students, I saw, oh gosh, the, the content thrilled me. They, what I saw grad students going through didn't thrill me at all. And then I had a life-changing experience in the summer of 1988. I got a, uh, an internship with the um, Student Conservation Association, SCA, and they take... Um, high school and college students and put them in internships in the national parks as basically as park rangers for a summer. And I was at the Curacanti uh, National Recreation Area just outside of Gunnison, Colorado, and developed there a love of working with people and talking about natural history. And I realized, wow, this is what I wanted to do with my life. Unfortunately, I also saw that the life of a park <laughs> ranger is a uh, it's a difficult one. 20 years in and people were still going season to season to season. Mm. And that aspect of it didn't appeal to me. But then I realized, wow, there are people that get to do what park rangers do every day of this, at least of the school year. And that's when I realized teaching was was an option for me. And so stayed in and got my degree at Duke University in their Master of Arts in Teaching program. And the rest, as they say, has been history. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's really interesting. So you, so you do this pathway, and I, I, um, I, I may have to jump questions a little bit on you here. Okay, um, that's fine. Because uh, I was realizing as I was reading this intro, I don't think, you know, this is now I'm a year and a half in here, and um, you're the first middle school teacher I've had, um, and maybe that's just I, you know, I run in the depending on who you talk to, either the right circles or the wrong circles, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, middle school. Um, why, why middle school? What is, what is the, explain to me the joy of middle school that I, as the a high school teacher, just don't understand why, why you ended up there. Well, I, I didn't intend to end up here. Um, <laughs> it was kind of a, I look back on it as a pleasant, uh, pleasant, you know, surprise in that, um, when I finished my, with grad school and I had my master of te arts and teaching, I thought, okay, the world is my oyster. I'm going to look around the United States for, for schools. And I'm the product of independent schools myself. So that's where I kind of focused. And I was expecting, I'd done my student teaching in high school. So, you know, sophomore biology, AP biology, that was the track that I just assumed for myself. To be honest, I never really thought about uh, middle school. And then um, the school I'm at now, St. Mark's, um, they came to me and said, we'd like to interview you. We have this middle school position open. And I thought, well, it's worth going, you know, and interviewing for, I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't have any real experience teaching middle school. Um, and I saw when I came to visit the school and I taught my uh, lesson, which there's a story for a whole nother episode <laughs> in that. Uh, let's just say I was either going to get the job or get arrested. Um, and luckily I got the job. But I realized just even in that first class teaching them how vibrant 
middle schoolers can be in a way that high schoolers don't have the same way. And, and there are plenty of exceptions. And I'm speaking in very broad generalities mm -hmm. here. But with my sixth graders, the one thing I absolutely love about them, they are at a, at a position in their lives when they're young enough that it's still cool to be curious. And I get that every single day. But yet they're old enough that they have enough intellectual makeup about them that they can dig into topics mm. that I don't have to babyfy a lot of things. And so that combination of things really on a day-to-day -day basis makes it really exciting. I say with my students, I could come in with no plan of, of attack and say, okay, guys, biology is a topic. What do you want to know today? And we can have the, a wonderful kind of utterly tangential experience that would lead in all sorts of wonderful ways. Mm. And so that's one thing that I've been, I'm lucky enough to have freedom in my curriculum to be able to do things a lot of teachers don't have the ability to do. And I have middle school kids who are eager to go where, where we can explore. And so we have a lot of intellectual exploration that way. Yeah, I can understand the whole energy component because um, cause energy is something that you find in classrooms. I'm I'm a little curious how much the energy is um, a product of the sixth graders versus the product of the, you know, middle-aged man, um, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, because, uh, you know, energy, I think is energy and curiosity are, are things that you can get out of a lot of different groups. Um, but it, it may be an interesting, I'm, I'm curious if there's, cause you then you go and you do this and you've been there and it's, it's been, you know, more than one or two years that you, you've <laughs> been there at this point. Um, so I, you know, I guess the, the question is, is that, you know, what led you get you into, no, I, I, I don't get, I don't know how to phrase this. I, I guess the question is you originally do this background and, and you got this really positive energy. There was never a point at which you were like, oh, I would like to go and, you know, teach high school or, you know, do something else, you know, try elementary. No, I, I, I hear where you're coming from. Well, I've been lucky enough in that because we're a one through 12 school here, oh, okay. I actually have had the chance to do some high school work as well. I've taught um, advanced placement environmental science um, for a number of years. I've also um, split time between my sixth grade life science classes and a ninth grade uh, college prep biology. Oh, so I so I get a little bit of both. Um, the last few years I've been exclusively sixth grade and I've done that as my kind of my core every year. But I do on occasion as need be jump into the high school level. Oh, that's a cool. So I get to see that yeah. those differences there. Yeah. So then you definitely get to see the the energy difference. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and there's and I find with um with and we do in our school um, freshmen uh, take biology and the one thing I I notice there is they are much more of a bring it to me. I'm going to be a little bit more laid back on things. Um, convince me I need to buy into this. Mm. And that's the, really the nature of, of the age. Whereas when you're with sixth graders, for instance, they're just kind of all out there, you know, and they literally, I, I joke that they will grab you by the throat and say, you know, intellectually feed me, you know, imagine um, from, oh, let me say it, a uh, little shop of horrors. Yeah. You know, feed me Seymour. <laughs> and, you know, that's really in many ways how um, the middle schoolers are. Oh, that's, that's awesome. 
All right. So now here you are. You're this middle school teacher from Texas. And somehow you end up in South African caves. Um, and I know that it's a long journey. I know that it's not it's not like just a one little click, but, clip, but we've got, you know, long form show here. So I'm curious, though, how does a middle school teacher from Texas end up in South African caves? I'll say there, there's a lot of luck involved mm -hmm. and a willingness on my part to be told no. <laughs> I got really lucky that at some critical junctures, I didn't get told no. But let's, um, I'll give you the, the backdrop here is that um, I've always taught human evolution in my courses and been lucky here in Texas that, that I've had a lot of um, administrative support in doing so and never really had anything I would call institutional pushback on that. Um, I knew this was the school for me when during my interviews, um, I walked in the science building and there next to the science lecture hall was a, a case, a glass museum display case with three hominid skulls that had been donated to the school mm. um, a decade earlier by Richard Leakey when he came to visit. Wow. So, wow, you know, yeah. this, I, I was like, okay, this is the place <laughs> to be. And so I've always taught human origins. And one of the ways I go about it is through the idea of adventure and exploration and the idea that all of these hominid species we talk about, um, they all have really neat origin stories of their discovery and why they're important. Why do we bother getting to know, you know, Neanderthal and Homo erectus and Lucy and all that? And I love telling their discovery stories. Well, it was 2012, and I, I had become aware of this new species called Australopithecus sediba. <laughs> and um, I knew the scientific value of it, I, but I really didn't know the discovery story of it yet. And I happened to be Facebook friends with the discoverer of it. Um, his name is Dr. Lee Berger. Um, he's a National Geographic Explorer in Residence. Um, we're not quite sure how we became friends on Facebook, but that's probably another discussion for another time. But it was um, in a night, August of uh, 2012. I was preparing for the year, and I knew I wanted to bring Sadiba into the story as the, if you will, the new branch on the family tree. But I didn't know the discovery story, so I, I went to him. His little green light on Facebook was on, and I um, – just on a whim, I said, Dr. Berger, happy to be friends with you. Could I ask a favor of you? And he responded with a four-letter word that changed my life. <laughs> that four-letter word was sure. Wow. And I asked him if he would just share the discovery story for my students. Didn't want to take up a lot of his time. And he said, be happy to. Tell me about your school. And I mentioned we were a school in Dallas, and he laughed and said, well, I'm going to be uh, in Dallas in a couple of months on my book tour promoting a book called The Skull and the Rock, which tells the story of the discovery of Australopithecus sediba. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. And then I, I got a little bit brave or nosy and said, could we? And he said, it's really not part of the book tour. It's a family visit. I said, could we steal you for an hour or two one morning to talk to my students? Expecting him at this point to, you know, sound like Foghorn Leghorn and say, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say, boy, you bother me. <laughs> and instead he said, that'd be great if we could get an audience maybe a little bit larger than just your students. Maybe Nas National Geographic makes it an official stop on the book tour. So I contacted our, um, 
our local um, science museum, which was in the process of undergoing a name and location change. It's now known as the Perot Museum of Nature and Science. And we found out that they were excited, but because they were literally moving buildings, yeah. um, they couldn't host him in November when he was coming. So I went to our head of school and said, could we possibly do a joint thing and got permission? And so Dr. Berger came, visited with my students in the morning. We did a hard hat tour of the Perot Museum in the afternoon. And then we, um, he did an evening show at St. Mark's and we had, you know, our great hall, which looks like the, um, the dining hall in Harry Potter, um, <laughs> had that full and we had an amazing visit. And at dinner that night, he said, you know, John, this was, this was a really neat experience. Um, we really need to get you down to South Africa to see uh, Sadiba. And I did what anyone else would do in that part. I was flabbergasted by this offer and I immediately turned him down. <laughs> I turned him down because I had a, a contract to do a summer photography camp during the week he was inviting me. Yeah. So we had a laugh and he said, well, we'll make it happen. And I was sure it was one of those situations you say, oh, we'll make it happen. And then you everyone's the polite about it, but nothing ever comes of yeah. it. And as luck would have it, the camp that I had contracted with folded in the springtime. Wow. So I was, you know, lemons becoming lemonade. <laughs> um, I was then able through a, a grant through some generous um, families at our school, I was then able to get down to South Africa and I spent two weeks down there and got to visit with Homo Naledi, spent time in the lab, got to go out to Malapa where Naledi was discovered. Um, just an amazing experience that way. And that then set the stage for when Homo Naledi was discovered a few months later, I happened to be one of the the first people to get to hear about it because I was now kind of a part of this team and, and really the only K-12 educator that most of the team was involved with at that point. And so word breaks about something's happening that's big in this cave. Um, when Dr. Berger puts out the, what's now famously the skinny scientist ad on Facebook, I saw that I was involved in, in that wishing I could be one of those people. <laughs> but as we joke now, um, like Dr. Berger, I am not physiologically appropriate for the narrow squeezes into uh, the rising star cave. But um, I was then able to follow the dig from Dallas with my students because Dr. Berger and his team were really great about live tweeting minute by minute. So I started to create a, um, a daily video of the Twitter feed kind of a storify before there was storify. <laughs> and then I would put that up on my blog every night so that my students could see it as well as then spread it to other students and teachers. So that was a really neat experience. And that led in, as you said, in 2015, for me to get to go back to visit the, the cave, um, interview all the major um, excavators, the exploration team, as well as Dr. Berger and John Hawks, who's kind of the number two a member of the team there. And so that's been a fascinating thing. So I've been able to share that with thousands of people. Wow. It's a long, a long path to yes. get down there. And then I can't really get down there, which is the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but the, the interesting thing about, uh, you know, you, you, there's like, I, again, you're telling stories and I'm like, 
ping, 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 like eight, eight different ideas <laughs> yeah. about questions and follow up. So I want to kind of go back to the, the classroom piece because um, I, I find it interesting that you talk about teaching um, human origins as like a core part of your uh, your course, because personally, and I'm going to go back and, you know, date myself because I've been in the classroom for quite a long time. I remember looking in and trying to sort of parse that story. And I found that when I looked up a lot of the resources that were available for K-12 teachers, um, it was really hard for me not to present. I, I was afraid of presenting human origins and presenting it like a great chain of being that this fossil led to, you know, like a lot of the textbooks, right. the way they lead it, set you up almost like you're in a great chain of being um, setting. You're, you're absolutely right. Yes. And that so, is a, a big risk. And I'm, and so I'm, I'm intrigued a little bit by how you weave this sort of discovery and adventure narrative into the, into the tree of hominid evolution. Well, and I, I feel I'm lucky in the timing of when I get to teach about it, um, teaching about it, say, here in you know the 21st century. Mm -hmm. I've, I've always been comfortable, and this is something I think a lot of people aren't, of saying, okay, here are the discovery stories. These are the pieces of the puzzle. And it's okay that we don't have other parts of the puzzle. So, yes, while the great chain of being is an easy kind of trap to fall into. And and I shouldn't even say a, a trap, but it's just the way it's been presented to many people. Um, I like to see it as here, here's the, the broad brushstrokes of the themes of human evolution. Here's where we have our fossils. Here's where the connections seem to be. But boy, wouldn't it be neat if we could fill in this, this, and this. Mm -hmm whether it's this time period or this geography. And then when you present that to students, it lets them be aware that, wow, there is still something out there to be discovered. And there, and there's a feeling, and Lee Berger talks about this, there's been the feeling even amongst the great paleoanthropologists of the world by the 1990s that all the big stuff had pretty much been discovered and maybe paleoanthropology needed to go in a, realm of let's analyze what we have and not worry about digging up new stuff. And certainly with discoveries over the last decade, we've blown that idea out of the water. Um, but students need to see that the, there are blank spaces that they can contribute to, whether it's on a map or, you know, in a knowledge base. Mm. So it, is it very much presented in like a, a hypothetical, like these are the things we know, and here are some hypothetical components that we just need more data for um, at this right. point. Right, yes. And I, I will present the idea of, you know, I'll say, and here in the old days, we taught this great chain of being, and it, it's very seductive. It, it works, and, and kids are very familiar with the graphics that go along with it. Mm -hmm. And so then you can say, as we've discovered more, here's how it branches out that great chain of being. Mm -hmm. And it there are suggestions of, okay, there are things that go this way. Why do they go this way? What is evolution doing with, say, you know, the megadonts and, you know, Paranthropus and, you know, the idea that you can go off down a dead end and it's not a failure per se. And that's in teaching evolution. I think that's an important idea that there are evolutionary experiments that, that don't come up to the present day. And that's true of 99.9% .9 of everything that's ever lived. And that's 
worth knowing about. Yeah, I think that the uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm thinking back to the idea of being. Um, you know, being seduced by a narrative that like sometimes we tell a story and as the instructor who can stand in front of the room and tell this really compelling, compelling narrative, um, we're seduced by the ability to tell that narrative. In this case, you're you're almost telling a a very incomplete narrative. It's like, well, we know there are these like 10 characters and we know how it it exists today. <laughs> and we know that this thing happened back in Chapter five. You know, and you got to sort right. of fill and, in the gaps. <laughs> right. And one of the neat things that I love, you know, and this is what we're able to, what I'm able to teach in doing this is nature of science. Yeah. That what we, what science tries to do is to answer questions and fill in those gaps in meaningful ways. And one of the things I love about the Homo Naledi story is that it is an ongoing attempt to use evidence-based science and hypothesis-driven paleoanthropology to answer questions when we look at homo naledi and go well why are they where they are and that has brought up a whole range of questions which are not easily answered but we have this this team going back in repeatedly to get more answers and of course as they do that they're bringing out more questions Hmm. and the whether it's the details of the questions and answers in some ways those wind up being less important for my students as being able to see that this is how science moves forward and this is the process of science. So that, you know, not all of my students are going to become paleoanthropologists or paleontologists, not by a long shot, but if they can have that mindset in all that they do, that there's a lot of value in that. Kind of, if you will, a scientific growth mindset. Oh, yeah. As you said that, it reminded me of something I'd heard on um, a, a recent uh, uh, This Week in Virology podcast where one of the contributors had said that uh, scientific discoveries should be measured in the number of questions they generate. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's sort of what you're saying. Like when they find a new fossil, sometimes it can be like a kind of neat. And sometimes it's kind of like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> we need time to back up and reevaluate and ask a whole suite of questions. And it's those discoveries that really those are the ones that are going to resonate within the community the strongest. Right, exactly. And the fact that when students can come to people in in the field, you know, and for my students, of course, I as their teacher am that immediate person. And to be able to say, here's what we think, but we don't have all the answers yet. And it's okay that we don't have all the answers. Um, I think for, for many people going through their science education, the idea is that science is all about the answers. When it's more about the process of getting to those answers and, okay, this answer, again, yields X other questions. And that's something I think in the easy kind of hypothesis, experiment, theory, mode of nature of science teaching, uh, that gets lost. So. Yeah, maybe I should. We should call the um, scientific method, as it's presented in textbooks, the uh, the great chain of being, um, or maybe like the great chain chain of scientific theory, yes, <laughs> because it's the scientific it's, chain of being. Yeah, the scientific chain of being. It's a, it's equally wrong. It's equally this it, again a sort of seductive narrative that like you you go in as a science teacher and you and you 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 went into the lab and you checked off this box and checked off this box and now you're done science, but. We all know it's way messier than that, but you're right. It's the the thinking process that's involved with the science. Uh, that's right, that's and, and it's fun to be able to have a project your students can be tied into where they can actually see that that it's messy like that, 
yeah. and that that's acceptable and indeed that's reality. Yeah. So when you do your presentation um, in the upcoming week, are you going to be doing a lot of this narrative of has it has it applied to your life, or are you going to make the curriculum connections uh, when you talk on March seventh? Uh, on March seventh, it, it'll be really telling the details of the Naledi story itself um, and t- and talking about it. Most of our audience we expect to be um, teacher pe- sorts of people, so I want to make those connections, but. Um, It's actually planned to be a two-part series. Uh, The first part will be basically telling the story, getting the facts of, you know, how we know what we know about Naledi out there. Uh, Because there's still, even though it was the number two science story of 2015, there's still a ton of people that know little about it or nothing at all. Mm. And so there's still a lot to be shared that way. And then in the second part of it, that will be where I really will focus on my feeling that I think every biology classroom in the nation should be learning about Homo naledi because there are so many interesting themes that it ties into beyond just, hey, cool new hominin species. Mm. All right. So that, when's the second part going to come out? We, we haven't uh, set that, that date yet. Okay. But so, maybe later this spring? Yeah. I, I expect it'll be certainly before the end of the school year. Oh, cool. All right. So um, I, before I get into the, the next question, I actually you brought up the Teacher Institute of Evolutionary Science. And I, I, am, I am curious a little bit on how you got connected in with them. Is this just a natural outgrowth of your, your Homo Naledi story and, and going down there? Or is this a group that you've done connections with or, or have used in, in other ways? Well, um, the, without going into a real long um, sidebar on it, mm-hmm. um, the, the director of we call it TIES, the Teacher Institute for um, Evolutionary Studies. Uh, Bertha Vasquez is um, she is a middle school teacher out of Miami, who um, was bothered by the lack of um, evolution teaching in schools. So we we are kind of kindred spirits in that way. And she um, got to to meet and get to know uh, Richard Dawkins, mm. and he has then he realized what she was trying to do in her local area and was very supportive of it. And that has grown over the last three years into ties, taking um, middle school and high school teacher presenters and doing presentations on here's how you can go about teaching evolution. If you're someone who's not already teaching it. Hmm. And so she heard about what I was doing and we, we connected and you know, I, they, they were kind enough to, um, award me their one of their their first teacher um evolution teacher of the year awards last year which was a a great honor and um they've now reached out and i believe the number is in 37 states um nationwide they have they have done um ties workshops for teachers and that will continue to grow wow And, and she won the um at NABT, the National Biology Teachers Association, won their Evolution Educator of the Year Award uh, in 2017. Oh, wow. So so it's a natural group for me, and it's one of the very few groups that's actually interested in getting everyday teachers teaching evolution in middle school classrooms and dealing with the challenges that, that are involved with that. Mm. And so that's an exciting thing to be a part of. Yeah, that is exciting. All right. So now that we've talked about evolution and human origins and all of these other things, I'm curious, um, what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the upcoming years? 
Boy, there are the big thing for for me, and I'm I'm an incredibly incredibly lucky person. I can't stress that enough. We are in the process of building a uh, a brand new science facility here, so um, that is something we've been in the in the same part of the same building since 1961, and so that that has been torn down, and we're now um, in the process of building a, a large spacious um, new building that will then then will refurbish our other existing space so that we'll have um, some great facilities. I'll have a, a new DNA lab to work with, a new greenhouse, a new planetarium where we can um, project biological things. <laughs> so, so I'll have a lot of, you know, kind of tech things that will help me um, bring in. And I'm looking in my middle school classes to bring more um, biotech in oh. um, because I, I, one thing I love being able to teach about is, is genetics, DNA, um, and that is something that we can do with with middle school kiddos. Um, that is not as difficult as a lot of people think, as well as um, the possibility of doing more uh, video microscopy, which is something I love. And I have a, a YouTube channel, which is uh, just JSMead is the username. And um, I love being able to share all the microscopic critters that we get to see that way and, and with the new facility we'll be able to do even more of that I'm so a, that, that is something i'm really excited about yeah that's i i'm curious about the dna technology because i do a fair amount of biotech but obviously on the high school um i'm curious how you frame the the biotech stuff at the middle school is it very much a um you know starting with a narrative starting with the story um what sort of biotech <laughs> stuff do you do you envision i don't know if you do it in your current space or are you envisioning it in your in your new space um i i envision taking what we a lot of what we talk about mm -hmm. now and being able to then in having it say a dna lab available to us being able to um show the tools in action one of my my favorite things is for instance, when we do uh, genetics and introducing my middle schoolers to sex-linked traits, um, you know, those are tough. Mm. And so I love telling, I take time out and tell the story of Nicholas and Alexandra, the czar of Russia, Alexei, their son who had hemophilia. And basically, and I overplay it a little bit for middle school minds, um, that, you know, a sex-linked trait brought down the Russian empire, <laughs> kind of, sort of. And, um, and I let them call me on the... Mr. Mead, you're overstating this a bit, aren't you? <laughs> and and it's good that they get their history, and I work with their history teachers to um, make the, help make that connection. But um, so we understand, you know, pedigrees and going through understanding the history there, and then we do the kind of the CSI, if you will, of okay, when they first discover the uh, grave of the Ro Romanovs, mm -hmm. and we go through how do they know who's who, and so we do the if you will, the biological anthropology of those skeletons, and then the initial um, mitochondrial DNA work. And so they're introduced there to gel electrophoresis, restriction enzymes, that whole idea. And then the idea of, oh, wow, and this is them speaking. This is pretty easy stuff to match up with the, you know, these people who are alive, who are descendants and have the mitochondrial DNA. And then to follow up with, oh, there's this legend of Anastasia. Did she survive? Did she not? And if you're not familiar with the story, um, you get all the skeletons out of the ground, and there are still two uh, young children, or the two youngest members are, are still missing. Alexei, the heir to the throne, and one of the two youngest daughters who 
biologically you can't distinguish their skeletons because they're close in age. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll say it's Anastasia because that makes a, a better uh, story. <laughs> and um, then several years later, we find out that they dig up another partial grave with bits of bone. And long story short, turns out those are the bones of Alexei and Anastasia. Um, and they use the FBI's CODIS database technology to be able to confirm that. And so I can then say, okay, here's CODIS. Here's how it relates to modern day. And now my next step will be with newer facilities, being able to do the gel electrophoresis, for instance. Yeah. Modeling, modeling how the technology in action. Yeah. That's cool. Right. Exactly. Like the, I like, does the interdisciplinary stuff, um, is that part of the school culture there where you're able to do that easily? It, it varies depending on, on the teachers involved, but generally speaking, yes. Yeah, and that, and that's, and the nice thing is that we, we make an effort to connect with each other, um, throughout our curriculum and being a smaller school, you know, our sixth grade total has less than 90 students. <laughs> it becomes easier to do that. So we, we know each other's curriculum backward and forward pretty much. That's pretty cool. All right. So I think we've touched upon it a little bit and you've dropped a little notices in there, but uh, when you are not teaching, uh, what do you like to do? Oh boy. Well, my, one of my big things is, and it, and it actually winds up being part of my teaching. Um, I love being outdoors. Um, our school has a great wilderness program and we require, for instance, all of our incoming freshman students to go on a, a 10 day backpacking trip in New Mexico in the, the August before their freshman year. And I've led groups of that for the last, gosh, 26 of the last 28 years. And it's a, it's a fantastic trip. So there, that's kind of my outdoor classroom students I had in sixth grade or may again have as freshmen as the year may, may be. Um, I get to then do a lot of natural history while we're out there, which is a, a neat aspect that you don't get to do so much in a suburban school in Dallas. So that, that helps. And then a, a, another aspect of that is I love uh, nature photography. That is something anywhere I go, I'm, I'm taking my camera. Um, I have a, my own website, bluelinephotos.com. Um, and the joke is up until recently, you'd be hard pressed to find a single person on my website <laughs> and because it's all animals, landscapes and the like. Although my wonderful wife is, um, she's president of our local community theater. And so I've gotten involved in theater, not that it's funny. I'm on stage every single day in the classroom, <laughs> but you'll never get me on stage as an actor. Um, but I love the, I've started to do a lot of photography of actors and promotional stuff for their shows. And so that's now appearing on my website as well. That's a neat hobby. Yep, exactly. That's cool. All right, so I've uh, I've grilled you here for forty ish minutes. Uh, so before we get to our picks of the episodes, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I, I'm curious um, for you, um, and and this is something I always like to to ask people who who are accomplished at things they're doing, especially if they've done it for a while. Um, as a teacher, what what do you know now? that you really wish you had known on day one of your teaching career? Oh, wow. What do I need to know now? I, I wish that I knew on day one that um, 
you aren't supposed to know everything and that (laughs) you should admit that you don't know everything um, and that you you should be humble about that. and I think that's a lot easier to do now, uh, having mm-hmm. a lot more experience and a lot more knowledge and not having to worry about that. Because at this point, you know, I'm oldish and I know quite a bit. So I do have a wealth of knowledge to draw from, from all of the previous students who've asked me questions and the teaching experience. But I do think I had a, a an unnecessary guarded reserve um, you know, I think we've brought it up before talking about the imposter syndrome um, in a few different ways, uh, an unnatural guarded reserve, probably that led into maybe even five to eight years into teaching. And, and that those were the years where it really came down. Um, but I know that on day one, I I certainly was not comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't comfortable with admitting what I knew and what I didn't know. And that was that was something that once I got to that, I became, it started my journey into being a much better teacher. So I'd say of all of the, of all of sort of the the life lessons or the classroom lessons about the fact that they don't, well, maybe they do expect you to know everything (laughs) all of the time, but that it's okay that you don't. And there are graceful ways of being uninformed about something and then being able to model the actual curiosity of, wow, that is a great question. I don't really know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I've said, I don't know to students. I like five or six times this week already where students have asked me, well, what's going to happen when I do this experiment? And I was like, I don't know. And I'm totally comfortable doing that now, but 22 year old me certainly couldn't have done that. Right. No, I definitely, I hear you there. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably would have made something up. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's clearly going to do this and that. Like I would have somehow like I. I, yes, we I don't, you always get caught if you make something up, though. The kids, yeah. <laughs> kids are smart enough to know you're making something up usually. Yeah, but I would have come up with something that was really believable sounding like. But I somehow like I could predict it. But the fact is, that's not science. Um, right. That's why we run the experiment. If I knew what I was what I what was going to happen, I wouldn't ask them to do it. Um, right. <laughs> but and these are for like student designed experiments in particular. Um, so, yeah, right. I think that's probably that's sort of the big one. That's a good one. Uh, I had to go back in time. All right. Is there any others? Any other zingers for me? Oh, that- <laughs> You were looking that, down that's at a, my really good one. Yeah, you looked down at a piece of paper. I, like you picked it out. I honestly got a little scared because I was like, "Oh my god, he's got a list." Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> he's taking notes. He's got all of this stuff ready. All right, so uh, let's uh, let's get to uh, picks of the episode. Um, so, John, what is your uh, pick of the episode? Oh uh, well, can I have two? Absolutely, you can have two. Okay, well, well, one is kind of a bit of shameless self promotion. Um, we're you know, here at the end of February, getting ready for March. So March means it's March Mammal Madness time. <laughs> and I had the, the great pleasure of getting to interview um, Dr. Katie Hind, who's the founder and creator of March Mammal Madness. And um, I got to write, write, write up all about it and my experiences with it for um, the National Geographic Education blog that I, you mentioned I write for. So that's, um, that's my latest there, and that was a lot of fun. And that's generating a whole lot of interest amongst teachers. Uh, Katie told me um, just yesterday that she's, this is the first time they've ever sent out the brackets early about March Mammal Madness. And um, she's sending out over a thousand, uh, stuff to over a thousand teachers. And um, that that will go out to over 75,000 students in the next week. So Mm -hmm. before, before you get to your second pick, I do want to tell you, 
I am going to do that with my alternative program kids uh, this month as well. Awesome. So yeah, I've, I've seen the things out and it works out really nicely this year. I happen to be doing ecology um, right now. So and we've done evolution. Um, so between the evolution and the ecology, I think we're going to be able to do a lot of nice curricular ties with uh, with the March Mammal Madness. So um, we'll be we'll be doing some research, I think, end of this week, beginning of next week, so that we have a, our doc all queued up and ready to go for when the we have to make our picks for the end of the week. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm, ha- I'm having my students um, over the weekend do their uh, do scouting reports on an assigned mammal. Mm-hmm. And then combining all 65 mammals, actually, they're not all mammals this year. There's one bracket of non-mammals. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and, um, and then so they're going to get a packet then of all the scouting reports from everybody to put their packet, their brackets together. Yeah, I have a, a little cooperation before the comp- competition. Yeah, I have like uh, seven students plus a teacher aide. Uh, that are in there right now. So we're going to have to, I'm going to have to sign multiple animals to each person. And we're, I'm going to take up some class time just because I think it's going to take them a little bit longer and we're going to do a big Google doc. Uh, like, I think I'm going to do a big shared Google doc or either, either by bracket or like four docs, one per bracket, or I'm going to do just one massive one. Um, I'll probably ask the kids which one they prefer. Uh, I think they'll yeah, probably prefer that the, smart. the one doc and then, yeah, we'll post those up and, um, Yep, I'm, I, I promised the world that I'm going to put mine on the uh, on the National Geographic Education blog, so <laughs> everyone can laugh at how bad my picks are. Yeah, I, I think my uh, my teacher aide, uh, who is a, actually a former student of mine, uh, who's who's filling in, but I have a special ed aide in that room, and uh, I think he's more excited to fill out his bracket than the the kids are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cool. the, the early twenty something uh, is like, yeah, I can't wait to fill out my bracket. He's like, maybe I yeah. can win this one. Uh, <laughs> All right, and so what? What's your second pick on a, on a less upbeat? And the second note? one is not nearly as cheerful and positive and fun, um, but that is the news this week that up in the um, in the high Arctic um, at the North Pole, either I, I believe it was yesterday or today, uh, they're measuring temperatures above freezing at the North Pole in the heart of winter here in February, mm-hmm. and so that is as a symptom of climate change and not just a simple weather phenomenon um that is that is of tremendous concern Mm -hmm. and so that is one of those things that you know we'll we need to keep a close eye on and unfortunately i think um you know the predictions of climate change and especially that it would be worse at the um higher up in the uh higher latitudes is definitely a uh an issue yeah, so. I think I saw something recently that the uh, ocean rise is not happening at a constant rate, but is actually at an accelerating rate um, based right. off of recent data. And this this actually falls along the same lines that um, I think a lot of the guarded predictions were just that guarded predictions with high extremes, low extremes. And they sort of let out with some of the cautious predictions. And this this is more in the uh, rapid climate change impacts that were it put out in some of the earlier uh, warnings that we've seen in the models. Yep, exactly. So, and what's your? All right. So my pick of the episode is uh, the E. coli long-term evolutionary experiment or evolution experiment. Do you know this one? Dr. Lenski, yes. Yes, Dr. Lenski. He's one of my heroes. Yeah, Dr. Lenski's uh, E. coli long-term evolution experiment just reached the 30-year milestone this month. And so for those of you guys who don't know, this is a uh, a 
a series of E. coli culture tubes that they have been keeping uh, at, is, I believe it's Michigan State. It is Michigan State. Yes. Okay, good. I can't get, I can't mess that up with Michigan. But at Michigan State, they've been uh, doing a long-term evolutionary experiment where they've been taking these cultures and separating them um, out into six separate vials, and they have been doing um, evolutionary change over time and documenting this up. So I'll put the links up to the the website for the the LTEE as they call it, um, and so you can check it out. So if you're not familiar with that, it's a it's a great ex- example of evolution happening today, not something that you have to go and you have to slither down into a cave many <laughs> thousands of or millions of years ago to get. This is something that's happening in a lab and being documented and has been being documented over the last uh, 30 years. I, I think the last time I looked at it, they were over 70,000 generations um, that they had had. Right. And I'm sure, sure they're well beyond that now. I think that was from a little while ago. So uh, yeah, long-term evolution experiment or the LTEE. That's my pick of the episode. Yep, I actually tweeted about it the other day. Oh and yeah, so, yeah, it's very. And it's I've a- actually, I've actually uh, tweeted back and forth with Lensky um, in one of my projects that I do of looking at who are the great evolutionary minds of all time. Oh wow, that's that's a whole nother story. <laughs> all right, well, John, you've now teased the fact that we're going to have to bring you back for like six or seven more episodes. But thank you for joining Happily me for th- so. <laughs> thank you for joining me for this one. Uh, let me give my quick show credits. Uh, music on this and every episode are provided by Jank Jank's, Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. Uh, you can uh, be a Patreon of this episode by going patreon.com slash lots. Patreons are invited into a secret Slack community um, and they get to share their thoughts with the likes of John Darko and uh, David Kanufke and other Patreons of the episode and Patreons of their work. You can get show notes on lifeofthe-school.org or on the Patreon site. Uh, you can tweet at me at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School and you can tweet at John um, at it's Evo underscore Explorer or at Blue Lion Photos. So thanks again for joining me, and I'll talk to everybody soon. Bye.